there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about Delhi, Pages from a Forgotten History by Arthur Dudney. The book is published by Hay House India and came out in 2015. And Arthur Dudney is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Cambridge. The book tells the story of India's capital and beyond through the lens of Persian literary culture. It's a real lively read written for a mass readership and details the lives of poets and emperors along with the origins, rise and decline of Persian in the subcontinent. I had the pleasure of speaking with Arthur just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Arthur to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Uh, I found your book a really enjoyable read that retells the history of Delhi and beyond from a from a new perspective. So I was wondering for a first question to dive right into the book, why did you decide to tell Delhi's story through that of Persian literary culture? Right. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, so the thing to know about uh, about Persian in India is that um, as a as a living culture, it's it's just about to fade out of out of memory. So the um, the Urdu poets who were getting their start, say in the 1950s, uh, were required as a as a matter of tradition to be able to produce a few poems in uh, in Persian, just to prove that they were that they were good uh, that they were good poets in Urdu, and um, and they're all quite old now, and um, and so once uh, once that generation is gone. Then, then this culture will really just be something that that we have in books. Um, Persian was really important for for Indian elite culture for uh, for many centuries, and and it's something that um, that really in in my own reading I haven't found synthesized in the way that that I've tried to do in this book. Um, there's a way in which modern Indian languages are. Are full of Persian words. Um, are are just deeply reflective um, of this of this Persian literary culture, and yet for for political reasons, just because of uh, and also just because of simple forgetting, um, it's people aren't really aware just how deep this went. Um, and there's a there's a pervasive idea um, which was really uh, really got its start in the colonial period uh, that. That Persian was somehow not authentically Indian. That that anything that was written in Persian was somehow was somehow marked as foreign, um, and and not really part of the authentic Indian experience, whatever that would mean. Um, but actually, this idea this idea is uh, is wrong if you look at it historically. It's much more it's much more complex, and and Indians. Um, at different points in history, thought of themselves as as masters of Persian, and and to be able to show this from the from the beginning up until the the present day, when when very little of this survives, um, I think is a is a very good way of of thinking about Indian cultural history in general. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And um, what brought you to this topic personally? Well, I. Um, I had an unusual education in that I um, I started uh, as a as a student of classics, um, as a, a, a student of Latin and Greek um, and and European languages. But I didn't really fit well into the the classics curriculum as it was um, because my interest was not you know how someone would have read a text when when Virgil or Cicero had written it but rather why that text was relevant at, at different points in history. 
um, paper has a very short life. So, so any text that we have from the ancient world um, was it was copied. It had to be it had to be picked up and and written out. Um, and and that's something that's always that's always very much interested me. Why why were certain texts valued so much that at different points in history they were copied out and circulated? Why did other texts die? And and why do um, why did people at different points in history look back at these particular moments in in the history of ancient Rome or or the history of ancient Athens and think this is this is a culture which is worth bringing forward? Um, and that is not really a question that's asked in a in a department of classics. Um, it's it's more something that that's in the field of comparative literature. So I was always between these two fields, and and it was when I visited Delhi myself just. Um, on the invitation of a uh, of a friend of mine and her family, who had nothing better to do than to host me for a summer, I I realized that these questions about about textual authority and how you move from a classical tradition into a vernacular tradition um, that it's something that that was a bit more immediate um, in the Indian context, and that furthermore in um, in the context of Western academia, if you uh, if you study the non-West in a Western university, uh, you're much freer to pose the questions, um, however you'd you'd like to pose them, because you're not going to be the you know the 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 five hundredth person to uh, to to write a PhD thesis on on Virgil's Aeneid. Um, so so I felt as though I could really I could really sort of break new ground um, by by studying India. Um, and originally, I thought that I was going to to do a project that was um, looking at the way in which the the Sanskrit epics, particularly the the, the Ramayana, um, how those were retold in in Hindi and in other in other modern Indian languages, um, and sort of trace the history of that um, of that translatio studi from um, which is just a, a I suppose a pretentious way of saying moving knowledge from one. Uh, one tradition into another, um, how that how that translatio studi could be uh, could be could be traced through particular texts. Eventually, I realized I wasn't I wasn't very interested in in Sanskrit, and um, and it became much more a project about Urdu and Persian, um, and and I became very interested in the way in which um, in which uh, the the Persianate literary tradition was converted into uh, a, a sort of a, a new cultural system, which later became known as Urdu. Um, and and that, that turned out to be a, a fascinating question um, tied with the way that um, the way that the society understood language fundamentally. Um, and, um, and, and I was able to address many questions about um, uh, yeah, about the way that the, uh, that language not only developed naturally, but was but was act- actively constructed through what um, what linguists now call language planning. The idea that you um, that that an elite group or a government can change the way in which a, in which a language is used. Um, we very often have this romantic idea that um, that that language is completely natural. We we have these biological metaphors. Um, to, to explain how languages develop, but but in fact, um, people very often think about what what aesthetic language is and what 
unesthetic languages, what what language spoken properly is versus improper language. Um, and and that's a, it's um, it, it sort of rubs up against our romantic notions that that um, that poetry sort of expresses expresses how we feel at a particular moment, and it's it's somehow authentic. But but of course, for a tradition like Persian or for Urdu, um, it's um, the the rhetoric is very important. And and by thinking about rhetoric and history, it's a way of of um, essentially decentering this notion that, that, that there's a particular kind of authenticity. Um, and, and, and that's very important. So, um, so that is a very long winded way of explaining, um, explaining where I come from and why I now study this particular aspect of, of rhetoric in the, in the Persian and the, the Urdu tradition. No, it's a, it's a good introduction, um, not only to the, to the topic, but also to your, yeah, to your understanding of it as well. So it's great. So, Let's start from the very, very beginning, which is what you do yourself in chapter one. Um, so where did Persian originate and how did it make its way into India? Well, to answer this question, we have to go back a long way in time. Um, we have to start with uh, Proto-Indo-European, um, which, as, as many of your listeners will know, is um, uh, it's a, a reconstructed language. Um, in other words, because it existed and it ceased to exist before, before writing was used, um, it means that we actually have no, no sample of this language. So what, what linguists have done is they've moved back in time um, from, from uh, modern languages like English, German, Hindi, to the languages that, uh, that came before them, and then, and then even then again to what, uh, what we're interested in this context is... Um, is a language group called uh, uh, called uh, Indo-Aryan, um, which uh, gave rise to the uh, to the Iranian languages. So, so modern Persian uh, is the one that we're most interested in, but also other languages like Kurdish, um, and then on the Indian side to languages like Sanskrit, um, but then also to the the modern vernacular languages of of northern India. Um, and um, and so Indo-European, as I said, there's no there's no existing there's no text in it. It's reconstructed from later languages. So so it's a theory, but of course it's a very well attested theory in the same way that in the same way that to use a, a biological metaphor, as I said, we probably shouldn't. Um, it's it's like evolution in that in that it's a theory, but it's a very very well attested theory. So. There was a group of people. We think they lived around the Black Sea. We think they lived around seven thousand years ago, um, and they they spoke a language, um, which, for some reason, uh, which we'll we'll never quite know, and certainly they could not have known at the time, um, was the was the seed for all of these other different languages, the Indo-European languages, which spread across Europe, spread across um, South Asia. And then, and then eventually later made it to the new world. Um, and Persian and all of the, all of the, the Northern Indian languages are linked through this, through this shared history. So, so eventually, um, eventually the, um, the language spread and, and at one time, um, the, the, uh, the Indian languages and the Iranian languages 
were were the same. They they came from the same the same root language, um, and and eventually they they split off into um, into the Iranian languages and and into the um, into the northern Indian languages. Um, so so Persian and Indian languages have this have this very very deep connection, um, which was was sort of lost in the sands of time, but which was was later understood. Um, both by by European scholars in the in the 18th century, but also um, as as I'm sure we'll discuss later by by Indian scholars um, in the 18th century who started to get the sense that that there must be this deep connection between these languages. Um, now there are a lot of intermediate steps, but but eventually a, a language develops, which we now call New Persian. Um, and and new Persian. When whenever I say Persian in this conversation, um, this is what I'm talking about. Um, so formally we call it new Persian, and this is this is the language that develops around the around the ninth century, um, and and is still eventually becomes um, becomes even the the national language of of Iran today. Um, it it so it has this this millennium long history. But it's a it's it's uh, grammatically quite a quite a conservative language, um, which which means that it's it's still fairly easy to read texts that that were written so long ago. Um, anyway, so so this this Persian um, is the the language that um, that was brought into India by by traders and by. Um, uh, and by uh, Mahmoud of Ghazni, who was um, a, sort of a, an early um, an early conqueror um, in the um, in the the tenth and eleventh centuries, um, and he uh, his uh, his empire that spread into India was was very much a, a, a Persian a Persian language using empire, um, and again um, that his, that particular political formation faded. Um, a few centuries later, the uh, the Delhi Sultanate came into being. A series of dynasties, which which again um, really respected Persian, um, and then um, and then it fell to the the Mughals from the 16th century to really uh, really make Persian the the sort of keystone of the of the administrative system, um, and then. Um, and then eventually, that was that was by the 17th and the 18th century. That's when many many Indians were were learning Persian um, in in a, a parallel to uh, to the way in which Indians learn English today. It was a it was a language of um, uh, of social betterment, uh, we could say. Um, and so and so that is that's the sort of um, the sketch of how. Uh, of where Persian comes from and how it um, how it it came into India. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for that. This is a uh, this this sets us up nicely to now start to talk uh, about some of the particularities. And I think a good way is to start by talking about a particular poet, which you which you do in chapter two, um, Ame Kusrao, if I pronounce it correctly. And at some point in the book, you say that Delhi was his city and he hated leaving it. So I was wondering, could you please tell us who he was? Why he was called the Pirate of India, and how he and his work were bound up with the city. So, um, Amir Husro was a, a, a poet who lived in the the late 13th century and the early 14th century. Um, he has a 
he has a very familiar story. Um, he uh, he came from a, a small village, basically, uh, in the middle of nowhere, and um, was recognized as having so much talent that he um, that he made his way to Delhi. He made his way to the big city, um, where he became um, one of the great classical poets of uh, of Persian literature. Um, he's he's one of the poets who was so prolific and had such a good reputation that um, that his work was known across the whole Persian-speaking world, from um, from Anatolia, which is modern Turkey in the West, all the way across Central Asia to the Chinese, the Western Chinese frontier, and and around India. He was um, he was arguably the greatest poet that that India ever produced. Um, at this time, Delhi was uh, was a, a thriving, massive city. Um, it had, uh, it had something like 400,000 inhabitants, um, which meant that, that it was the, the second largest city in the, in the Islamic world at the time, only Cairo was bigger. Um, and, um, and it was a place where, where Amir Khosrow really thrived because he, um, he had noble and royal patrons. Um, but he was also connected to the the Chishti Sufi order, um, and and particularly to his his spiritual guide um, Hazrat Nizamuddin, and and in fact uh, Hazrat Nizamuddin and Amir Khusrow um, are buried near each other in the in the same complex in um, uh, in what's now called uh, Nizamuddin Basti in sort of south central Delhi. Um, so so Amir Khusrow had this um, had this spiritual connection to this. Uh, to this important Sufi order, but at the same time he was a he was a very successful poet um and was always uh just like the Sufis themselves were always always trying to balance their um their their spiritual aloofness from the world with the possibilities of political patronage um Amir Khusro was uh was performing the same balancing act um and was um was recognized as a very successful poet and and making a great deal of money from his poetry, but at the same time he he was not particularly happy uh, with the life of of a courtier. He he wasn't particularly happy that he would have to, uh, at the whim of a patron, produce um, you know bucket loads of of poetry. Um, and he especially disliked when when a patron asked him to. Um, to, to go out on campaign, um, because in a, in a context like this, um, the, the emperors and the, the noblemen, um, they, they took their households with them whenever they, whenever they went on campaign or whenever they went anywhere. And so, and so even, even the poets had to, had to come along as well. Um, and, and these were the times, uh, we know because, because Amir Khusro said so in, in some letters that are preserved, um, that 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 he was the least happy. He would he would rather have been had been at at home in Delhi, um, you know, sort of thinking about um, thinking about the higher um, the higher aspects of poetry rather than um, rather than being stuck entertaining these uh, these patrons of his um, in the sticks. Um, and um, and so and so Amir Khusrow, um when he did, when he was able to produce his, his great work, um, 
these uh, these works became became known around the whole of the of the Persian using world, and and Husro as the parrot of India, he he got that moniker because um, he really was a, a a symbol of of India. He was. Um, he he wrote in in certain works that um, well essentially he wrote uh, as as any as any court poet he wrote praise poetry about India um, and he um, and he implied that he was that he was proud of being Indian um, and and so had this reputation as the um, as the as the parrot of India um, on the other hand um, I think that. I think that nationalists, later nationalists, especially in the 20th century, um, have done him a, a disservice in trying to uh, trying to read this pride as a kind of um, as a kind of pride in the in the Indian nation state, which of course wouldn't exist in uh, you know for for centuries. Um, and and it's it's always a it's a mistake to try to to try to read references to to India or to Indianness. From this period, as um, as mapping easily onto modern understandings of citizenship, um, but but clearly he was very um, he was very uh, very proud of his situation um, and 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 very aware of himself as a uh, as an Indian, um, but but also as someone with with a Central Asian background, um, and and this is something that we'll see time and time again. There. Um, before before the modern nation states um the the empires in central asia were very were very fluid and and in fact the mughals who would who would come into power a few centuries after amir khusro um would uh they they were central asians um and they they had no at the beginning they had no sense that they would stay in india um and that, so there's this constant there's this con- constant uh, cultural and military movement through the through the Khyber Pass, um, and this is something that we see time and time again. And it's um, it's very problematic for people who want to claim that the Indian culture is something something unchanging and and indigenous when when in fact you can see that there's this constant uh, this constant movement back and forth from the from the northwest um, into into India, bringing um, bringing uh, new ideas and bringing, bringing commerce. These commercial links were always very important. Mm-hmm. And talk of the Mughals um, segues us nicely onto my next question, because you, you start chapter three with a quote from Babo, who uh, was, of course, the first Mughal emperor. And, and his quote is very unflattering about India. I'll, I'll read it. He says, the cities and provinces of Hindustan are all unpleasant. All cities, all locales are alike. The gardens have no walls and most places are flat as boards. Yet, despite this, subsequent Mughal emperors really fell in love with Indian cities and, and created conditions for a, a flourishing Persian literary culture. So I was wondering, could you please talk us through this, this change of heart? Yes. Um, so Babur was, um, I think we might, we might call him a warlord. Um, he, had a, um, he had a very large family and... and uh, essentially, a, a band of warriors that that he called upon. Um, he came from the Fergana Valley, which is a, a beautiful, um, lush place on on caravan routes, which is um, in uh, sort of in the in the upper eastern corner of today's Uzbekistan. 
Um, and because of political machinations, he was um, he was thrown out of his home um, by um, the, this very large family had had different small empires around, and so and so essentially his home was was taken from him, and he uh, he then moved around Central Asia um, with his um, with the with the people who were loyal to him, um, conquering as he went, and and eventually. Um, eventually setting up shop in, in Kabul. Um, the problem was that, that he was eventually, um, there was no more territory to conquer and he was hemmed in. And so really the only, the only place for him to go was India. Um, and so he, uh, he made a few forays into India, but eventually by, um, by the 1520s, as I said, there was, there was nowhere else to go. And so, and so he, um, he and his he and his soldiers um, swept into India, um, defeated the the last of the of the Delhi sultans, and um, and and were in charge of the place. They were they were in charge of the the, the fertile part of of northern India, and um, they um, it it was a sort of I mean for us in in retrospect, I mean one thing that I try to do throughout the book is to to think about historical contingency and to, to, to try to think about, um, you know, we, there are certain things that we know now that seem to make things inevitable. But if we were, uh, if we were, uh, uh, the Mughal war band who had just, who had just swept in from Kabul into India, it was by, by no means obvious that, that this would be the beginning of an empire that would, uh, that would, uh, bring stability to uh, to India, and that that would be completely swept out of Central Asia. Babur still thought of himself as as a Central Asian, and so he brought with him this culture, which was um, they were they were generally Chagatai Turkish speaking um, in their daily lives. That was their that was their vernacular language, but um, they had Persian poets, and they they freely quoted Persian poetry, and that was the as it would be, um, well, as it was in India at the time, um, Persian Persian was the language of, of high culture and of administration, um, if not of of daily life. Um, and so, um, and so, Babur uh, Babur had his retinue of poets, um, including uh, including an important poet called um, Ali Sher um, Navoi, who was um, now claimed as the sort of national poet of Uzbekistan. Um, because he was a he was primarily a Turkish poet, but he, like other poets, was was bilingual and also um, also composed in Persian. Although we know that Babur didn't particularly respect his um, his Persian poetry because he tells us as much. Um, the the thing that um, that we really have to keep in mind about the about the Mughals is that um, they were um, they were inveterate diarists. They Babur, we know so much about Babur and what he thought, because um, he left us. Uh, he left us a, a, a journal. He left us a text called the Babur Nama, which was which was written in in Chagatai Turkish, but with many Persian quotations in it, uh, which is very good uh, good evidence of how important uh, Persian literature was. Um, and um, and this text was. Um, <clears throat> This text was uh, was read by the 
by the first the first uh, two generations of of Mughals in India, but then eventually their Turkish wasn't good enough to read it anymore, and and it was eventually translated into Persian um, by a uh, by a courtier. Um, um, Abdul Rahim Khani Khanan, um, a, a few centuries, uh, a few centuries later. Um, so, so, and and other um, other Mughal emperors also kept um, kept these kept these journals, um, the and 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 really carefully recorded what they were thinking and and what they saw. So the the Babranama has. Um, long sections describing the the flora and fauna of India, um, and also um, also things like how commerce worked. Um, at the same time, is giving us a, a, a very good sense of how um, how Babur's inner circle really functioned, um, and and really what it was 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 a lot of warriors um, getting very very drunk together and and reciting Persian poetry. Um, and and that it's it's an interesting transitional moment because um, because of course the Mughals are descendants of the Mongols. They're very they're very proud of that link to um, to these these Central Asian steppe nomads who um, who were able to because of their superior horsemanship were able to to sweep across Asia and and into Europe um, and and eventually. Um, as they became more, um, as they became more sedentary, and their their culture came more into contact with this with this um, this settled Iranian culture, um, with its respect for Persian, they um, they uh, picked up many of the arts, the the architecture, the um, the painting, the poetry, um, the the elegant prose composition. Um, and they they integrated that into uh, into their own their own cultural system, and um, and it became something it became something uh, something new and um, and fascinating to reconstruct. And that's that's what eventually was brought to India. So India um, famously has uh, uh, has a capacity for for integrating different uh, different cultural traditions, and it. Was able to integrate this this cultural tradition, which was itself so um, so integrative. Um, to I think I just coined a word, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so so really, for for Babur, when he came to India, um, he came to India and was amazed by by how different it was, how strange it was. the The animals were different. The climate was different. Um, he he and his friends had never. Had never really seen a hot place. They were they were used to the the, the temperate and and even cold steppes, and they came to India and it was hot all the time. and And in fact, some of his followers um, asked for permission to go back to to Central Asia because they uh, because they just couldn't uh, they they couldn't manage the climate basically. Um, and so Babur Babur looked at this place and and uh, as in the quote you read, he he didn't really like the way it looked. The, the cities were not, were not attractive to someone who, who was used to the, the monumental architecture of, of central Asia, um, with its, with its beautiful tile work and, and things like that. Um, so there was an aesthetic problem. And so he, he tried to rectify this by building, building central Asian gardens, um, 
the so-called charbag or the the uh, the the uh, quadruple garden, which is a a square garden which has four squares within it, uh, which are divided by walkways. And this is if you if you go to a place like Humayun's tomb in Delhi or um, or the Taj Mahal in Agra. This this charbag is still the still the pattern of gardens which are are used by by later um, by later emperors. Now, besides this, besides these aesthetic problems that that, that Babur perceived, um, there was also a, a kind of moral and intellectual problem um, for for people like Babur. Um, these these drinking parties um, are were, were very important because they they showed a kind of comportment. Uh, which is called uh, it's called suhbat in Persian. Um, suhbat is, um, I mean, in in modern Persian it means it means conversation, but um, but at this time it was it was uh, better translated, I think, as comportment. It was um, it was all the different ways in which people uh, people related to one another elegantly, according to the right manners, using the right language using the right, uh, the right literary forms, um, you know, quoting, quoting poetry to one another to, um, as a way of not, not actively, um, instead of, instead of actively giving someone a command, um, someone might instead quote, a, a, a verse of poetry, um, to make it clear what was required, but without actually having to give the command. And, and this is especially important uh, not a superior commanding a, a, his junior, but rather a junior asking for something from his superior. Uh, it was very difficult to uh, to demand something of someone who's higher higher up in the hierarchy, and so and so there were oblique ways of doing it. And so uh, suhbat was this this uh, central uh, cultural construct. And and Babur came to India, and he said, "Well, no one no one has this. No one." Uh, no one has this this elegance, um, and 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 in a way, what he what he set about doing um, was um, was inculcating this kind of um, this kind of culture of, uh, of of performance and of conversation um, in the in the people he encountered, and and that of course is what the Mughals eventually developed into. Um, into such a uh, such a wonderful and such a unique uh, form of uh, 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 of literary and uh, and intellectual and and social culture. Um. <clears throat> wonderful. Now let's uh, yeah let's let's go there. Let's let's move and talk a little bit about this sort of culture developed under the Mughals and 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 skip forward a little bit in uh, in history and talk about. Shah Jahan, who's probably most famously known as a builder, both in South Asia and I suppose internationally, but of course, so of course, he was also a, a sponsor of the arts. So I was wondering, could you talk us through how, under his rule, what ways did Persian poetry and literature develop? Yeah, so um, of course, Shah Jahan built um, what we now call Old Delhi, um, but which, uh, of course, when he built it, was uh, was Shah Jahanabad, Shah Jahan city, um, and and. Shah Jahanabad really was a um, a sort of physical manifestation of uh, the Mughal views on um, on aesthetics and, um, and 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 ethics and morality. It it um, it structured in the in the world the way the way in which they 
um, they thought. And so, um, and so Shah Jahan was, um, he, he became emperor at a time when the, when the emperor, when the empire was, uh, was sort of well, well established. Um, and, and also at a time when, uh, there was political upheaval, um, in, in Safavid Iran. And so he was very lucky in that, um, it, it was the time when uh, the sort of peak of immigration uh, from from Iran took place, and so and so not only did he have the the, the resources of of India at his disposal, but but so many Iranians decamped uh, from the from the major Iranian centers of culture to India that the that the Mughal court and and other local courts in India. Uh, were able to draw upon this this vast pool of talent, and um, by by essentially paying people better than um, than they they could have earned in in Iran, um, many important poets came and and sort of built this um, built this poetic and bureaucratic culture um, that that was also um, was also very aware of of how it was anchored in. Uh, in Indian life as well, and so and so Shah Jahan uh, was uh, sort of presided over this moment of of um, uh, not only not only great uh, great physical construction but but cultural construction, and and he uh, he in a way guided it just as um, well just as his his predecessors um, Akbar and Jahangir had. Um, they uh they they really sort of uh it was it was um, the the Mughal empire was at the the height of its prestige um and and really had had by then uh developed a developed a system for um for all of these different different kinds of communication and and literary support and and supporting great um great ateliers where um where miniature painting and and bookmaking um, were also were also reaching uh, reaching their peak, um, so so it was a um, it was a very it was sort of the um, the best time for uh, for sponsorship, but also for um, just because circumstances in the in the world in the Persian using world as a whole. Um, meant that there was this this tremendous flow from from other parts of of the Persian world into um, into India, and and while that was always the case, there was always this movement. Um, as I said, the the Khyber Pass was always this um, always this conduit for uh, for Central Asians to come to India and Indians to to trade in Central Asia. Um, this was the time when the um, you could say a bit crassly when the price was right, um, when the when the 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 imperial apparatus really could afford to um, to to compensate um, the the great Iranian poets so well that they they all felt that that it was a that that coming to India was was a, a rung on the on the ladder of career development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. 
Now, um, 18th century India is, is usually depicted as a time of, of cultural decline, that there's a central, there's a breakdown of central authority, that there's many invasions and a, and a decline in the arts. But you argue um, quite forcefully in, in, a, in one of the later chapters, and also you bring it up in the introduction, that it's not quite as simple as it's usually painted. Yeah, to, to understand the 18th century, um, we have to think about the, the sort of the great political event of the, of the early 18th century, uh, which was the death of Aurangzeb. Um, Aurangzeb was the, uh, an emperor who ruled for a very long time um, at the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century. And he, because, because he was very, um, very austere in his religious observance, um, is, has usually been contrasted in, in historical writing with the emperor Akbar. Now, Akbar is seen as uh, the enlightened emperor who, um, who was open to Indian culture and the arts and, um, and, and, and sort of created a tolerant, um, a, a, a tolerant uh, empire. And Aurangzeb is seen as being, um, being too austere, too, too bigoted to, uh, to be able to preside over over an empire as culturally complex as as the Mughal Empire, and and the idea is that he hastened its um, its end just by by being a bigot. Now we've we've moved well beyond this this idea, I think, because because Aurangzeb, uh, although personally he was not that interested in the arts, um, and in a in a society like this where the emperor has a huge family and and a large number of retainers. Um, who who very much get their cultural um, their the, the cultural trends are set by the emperor. It does mean that there there was less um, there was less interest in the arts at the center, and you can see you can see a typical painting from from Shah Jahan's reign, which is colorful and uh, and beautifully embellished with um, with decorations, and then uh, and then one from Aurangzeb's reign, which is just a usually muted greens and browns and gold with very little decoration. And that, and that very clearly shows the way in which, um, in which Aurangzeb was a, uh, was a different sort of cultural consumer. But at the same time, the idea that he was, um, that he was, uh, that he was a bigot and, and presided over a massive destruction of Hindu temples and rejected Indian culture wholesale, all of this, um, that's all very overdetermined, and, um, and 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 to my mind, not true. What did change was this um, uh, was, as I said, mainly this because there was the lack of interest um, uh, on the part of the emperor in um, in different different arts that had once been very prized. Um, although Aurangzeb himself was was very well educated in Persian and and did write a bit of Persian poetry. Um, and also wrote wrote beautiful Persian prose. Um, it it meant that there was uh, there was a decentralizing effect, and so um, and so culture that had once been once been funded um, at the at the Mughal court itself, um, vast ateliers of of painters um, and and the poets. Um, these now moved outward to to the the courts of of individual noblemen and so uh, and so it's difficult to say that there was that there was at that moment um a decline there was definitely a decentralization um but but in some ways um things were uh 
things were very uh, culture was maintained, but at at different levels, not necessarily at the center. In in writing Mughal history, there's there's often a problem um, of confusing decentralization and decline, um, saying that they're that they're one and the same. But especially when you're talking about something like culture, um, it's it it becomes problematic to to make such a blanket statement. Um, so anyway, to to go back to the 18th century, um, once once Aurangzeb died, um, there was uh, there was quite a bit of political turmoil, um, and and there's seemingly a contradiction in that the the really complicated politics. Um, which which involved, um, uh, for example, in in one year there were a number of different emperors who just deposed one another um, in uh, in succession, and um, and there were various invasions, um, most notably by by Nader Shah in the late 1730s. So so Nader Shah here was a a, a Turkish speaking warlord who was able to conquer all of Iran. Um, and and then eventually turned his sights to India and um, and really humiliatingly defeated the Mughals and um, and robbed the Mughal treasury and that that of course was a, a a great blow to the society but at the same time um, the the poets and the intellectuals um, were able to function uh, despite this this political turmoil um, and. Um, and indeed, were uh, were very very interested in the um, in what the what Nader Shah's army and his administrators uh, how they how they used their documents. Um, not as many people have assumed because uh, because now here were these Indians who were encountering these um, these Iranian quote unquote native speakers of Persian. Um, after all, remember that, that many of these people are actually actually. Turkish speakers, um, but they they encountered these people, and they were they were very interested in the in in whatever administrative changes would be made now that uh, now that there was a new uh, there was a new administrative dispensation with um, with with all of these um, with all of these people who had come with with Nader Shah and had had sort of um, inserted themselves into the into the Mughal establishment. Um, so, so things were certainly in flux, but at the same time, um, there was, uh, culturally, um, things were, things were very, very, uh, very, very rich in this period because, um, because people were turning to the, to the philosophy of language in ways that they, uh, that they never had before. Um, and this is, this is really the, the subject of my PhD. So my, my PhD is about, um, about someone called uh, Sirajuddin Ali Khan, um, called uh, his pen, by his pen name um, Arzu, um, and Arzu was um, uh, was arguably the the sort of greatest um, in in his work. He he took the um, concepts about the the fundamental nature of language further than than anyone ever had in the in the Persian tradition. Um, and what he did was he took um, uh, he took writing in, in Arabic, um, centuries old, old, uh, philosophy of language in Arabic. Um, and he, he reworked that into, into something that had contemporary relevance. And, and through this, he was able to think about the way in which Persian and, and Indian languages were connected. 
um, and and really make a make an argument for uh, for for the kind of literary culture that was developing at the time. Because now um, uh, now Urdu, what what would later become called Urdu, um, was was at the center of things, and and so people people living in Delhi, people who were um, who were poets, they were they were composing both in Persian and Urdu. Um, without without seeing those as uh, as necessarily uh, in conflict, uh, because uh, for you know for later for later scholars for later nationalists, it's very important to say that that Persian was artificial and people were giving up on it, and Urdu was natural and people were embracing it because it was the natural language of northern India. But in fact, Persian um, provided the the framework for for the the early philosophy of uh, of Urdu literature and therefore Urdu as a, a as a spoken language, um, and that's what that's what Arzu was so was so important in in developing, um, and also in in adjudicating disputes between um, people who were arguing for for new styles in in poetry and people who were um, who were wedded to the style of the of the so-called ancient poets, um, meaning the, the classical tradition. And so, and so Arzu, um, essentially comes up with a formal system explaining, um, how, uh, how symbolism works in poetry and how, um, when a, when a symbol is appropriate and when it goes too far. Um, and so, and so he theorizes innovation in a, in a very important way, not only that, but, but, in in thinking about innovation, he also thinks about the way in which um, in which words can be borrowed from Indic languages into Persian, and and he he also um, creates a system to to adjudicate whether it's it's appropriate to borrow a word or not, which of course had been happening for centuries, but it was a it, it was a matter of uh, of consternation for some people because uh, because um, you know poets would. Uh, would comment on each other's work. This is not a Persian word. You're not allowed to use this. And it, so it was very important for Arzu to say, well, actually it is okay to use Indic words under certain circumstances, um, using, using a particular kind of, uh, of, of authority in, um, in the, uh, in the tradition. Authority is a, is a key word and it's, it's key in my work because, uh, for us, because we have modern linguistics, we we tend to think of um, authority as being synonymous with uh, native speaker privilege in a language. Um, and historically, and especially in a tradition like Persian, which is used from from Turkey across Central Asia to China and in India, the the people who are actually native speakers of this language um, are minimal because it is a it, it's a, a language. It's a taught language. Uh, it's a taught tradition, um, in many ways akin to to Latin in um, in early modern Europe. Uh, very few people were were native speakers of Latin, um, though there were a few mostly weird experiments in that way. Um, but almost everyone learned this this standard language, and that's the same way it was it was in Persian. Um, there were many different dialects, but the but the actual um, 
the the actual formal written language was was restricted, and this is one of the things that that Arzu uh, was was actively thinking about, um, and and thinking about the both the the historical and the contemporary ties between these um, between these different kinds of kinds of language use, and so he was. Um, it, it's it's all very interesting because. Um, Europeans would come up with um, with ideas that were that were quite similar to this, um, only because the Persian tradition uh, became uh, because Persian became a dead language in in India. Um, the all of this all of this great philosophy of language never never went anywhere. It was it was abandoned, and and it's it's one of these historical what if scenarios. What if uh, what if it had been allowed to develop further? Um, would we would we have a different way of of thinking about the way that that um, language works in in uh, in our own analysis today? Yes, absolutely fascinating. I suppose one of the one of the um, yeah nails in the coffin for this or the, or the start of the sort of reduction of, of Persian in uh, in in South Asia was was the was British colonialism. Now, initially, they, they adopted Persian as a language of administration, but then they decided to stop using to it. So I was wondering, can you explain this change, and also how did this also change literary culture? Yeah, so so of course, the um, when um, when British colonialism began in India, um, Persian was very much still the language uh, the language of administration, and so they um, they uh, they fit themselves right into that system, and basically. Basically acted as though they were just uh, um, another Indian state. So they they received the the newsletters from other courts in Persian. They they wrote letters to um, to people they were dealing with in Persian. Um, and there was a very large um, there was a very large Persian uh, Persian analysis and writing section in um, in the in the administrative establishment um, in in Calcutta. Um, and uh, they uh, they were off to a very a very rocky start when they first came to India because they they weren't very good at producing the kind of paper that um, that the Mughals valued or the kind of uh, the kind of literary language and so and so basically it it when the the documents that they were sending to to Indians were were considered laughable because they were just so um, they were just so badly written you know as though uh, as though today you made a, you know, you were, were making a formal request to the government just on, on lined paper written in pencil. Um, so, so that was, um, that was something that took them many decades to learn, but eventually they, they learned the technology very well, the technology of, of writing and, and even of, um, of literary language as a technology, because the thing that really changed eventually, um, with, uh, with colonialism was that this this literary persian language where where every every document would make literary references every document began with a long formula and closed with a long formula um the british dispensed with that um once they got more confidence and that and that's what really changed um they they became more confident and they then started to change the persian themselves and they they simplified it they made it less literary and and eventually they um they eliminated it completely because it was persian by that point had become one more language that um that a young cadet uh 
would have to learn um, in order to uh, in order to function in in India. Um, now, of course, literary patronage became became less and less available because uh, by the end of the 18th century, uh, there was there was no question that the uh, that the Mughal that the Mughal establishment was in complete disarray. Um, by the by the early 19th century, um, once the once the British had um, had conquered Delhi, they um, the uh, the Mughal emperor was no more than, than a figurehead, and and even he he received um, he was he was kept in place as a convenient fiction, so that the because because of course British rule derived its legitimacy from the um, from the early uh, the, the early revenue collection rights that um, that the that the East India Company had received from the Mughal emperor. Um, but by this point, the Mughal emperor was was practically a, a prisoner in his court, and um, and even things like the 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 presents that he would distribute to his very large household, um, he made a show of of still presenting those those gifts. But in fact, um, the the company had had given him the money um, in advance and and had a very precise list. Um, of of which present went to which which person so so there was just no more the 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 Mughals were broke by this point there was there was very little literary patronage um to there was very little funding for literary patronage even even though there were still um i mean people forget that there were there were poets who were were um essentially still composing most or all of their work in persian into the into the mid nineteenth century. Um, now, at the same time, um, as as Urdu developed, um, and and Urdu was very very heavily patronized by the um, by the the colonial state because it was seen as an alternative. Um, and and as I alluded to earlier, this there there was this idea that Urdu was the the sort of nat- natural language, and and Persian was this sort of foreign. Um, uh, a, a foreign um, imposition, uh, which which doesn't really belong in India, and the British the British really promoted this idea, especially after they after they did away with um, with Persian in government after 1837. Um, but I mean, the these are of course all moral judgments which are which are applied, um, and um, and and. Are, are part of a long, a long process of, of in a way, delegitimating Persian um, for for whatever purpose, um, and and even I mean this is this is outside the scope of our conversation, but the 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 complexity of writing a proper Urdu literary history um, is still is still something that scholars struggle with because because there is this idea that that obviously Persian deeply influenced Urdu. But um, there's a there's a moral quandary that people find themselves in when they admit that because they think that that may, make somehow makes Urdu fake, and so and so even in the 19th century, um, the the great Urdu literary historians were were struggling with the idea of how do you how do you admit that Persian was an influence while while somehow bracketing off Persian as being this immoral thing, whereas. Urdu is somehow is somehow a natural, national, properly Indian language, and and of course it gets it gets tied up with the question of the difference between between Hindi and Urdu as well, because um, because it's a fact that that colloquial Hindi 
is full of, of Persian words, uh, whereas the, the, the Department of Official Language in the government of India, which, which promotes a particular kind of Hindi, is, is trying to prune out all of those, all of those words and replace them with, um, with either more obscure indigenous words or, in some cases, uh, Sanskrit neologisms, which have just been made up um, to, to, to serve the function of, of somehow indigenizing the language and, and taking Persian out of it. Um, and, and in Pakistan, you see, uh, you see the, the opposite happening where words that sound too, that sound too Indic are pruned out of the language and are replaced with, with Arabic words um, or Persian words. And in many cases, it's funny because, because Arabs don't recognize these Arabic words that, that Pakistanis are now using in their Urdu because the government told them to. Um, sorry, if you, I didn't want to stop you. Uh, no, 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 that's, <laughs> sorry. No, it's quick. I mean, and I think that's, uh, that's something actually that, that runs through the whole book, which I really liked. It's a, it's a nice, um, subtle and, and timely political intervention, I think, as well. And um, so I think I'd, I want to highlight that for the for the listeners as well, that this is the book really serves this purpose nicely as well. Um, I also wanted to say, actually, for the listeners, that this is a very readable book. I mean, it's, it's you don't need a PhD in linguistics or classics or self-agent history or anything like this to read it. It's it's it's, it's a, yeah, an enjoyable read for everybody. And, I, and this is how, how you've aimed it. So I, I wanted to highlight that as well. Um, but oh, I well, I'm, whether... I'm, I'm very grateful for you uh, to you for saying that because yeah, that it's um, it's a nightmare to market a book like this because I I tried so hard to to make it readable and make it interesting, but at the same time I think um, I think people pick it up and look at the the transliteration of the Persian passages and think, oh my God, I can never read this. <laughs> but no, I, I, at least I, at least at least for me, it was it, it was it was really a, it was really a pleasurable read. So um, let's let's hope it uh, let's hope it does so well and it just get out there. Um, I was wondering if there's anything that I might have missed in my questions that you'd like to highlight. Yeah, I think um, I think maybe you know I, I've alluded to this several times, but I think just thinking about thinking about being citizens in a in a modern world which is full of nation states, that that's now the fundamental unit of how we build societies. Um, it, it's very important, I think, to think about, um, to think about rhetoric in the past. Why did people say things the way they said it? Not, you know, not a, not a superficial reading where we assume that people, um, that, that people are just sort of, uh, speaking, speaking how they feel or speaking, uh, you know, a, 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 an easily, an easily traceable truth, but but how does the way in which people speak, um, how how do uh, and and the different the different forms of, of of speaking and language use that are available to them, how does that shape what they what they're able to say, um, and, um, and and how in fact is that very different from the way in which we have this romantic notion of people sort of which has a particular genealogy of people sort of. Uh, speaking, you know, saying what they feel or um, composing poetry in this romantic way where you express your emotions. Um, and it's, it's less about having a, a system of symbolism, which was very much the case for a tradition like, like Persian and Urdu, right? If, if everyone writes about uh, the moth circling the flame or the, the lover, the mad lover, you know, chasing his beloved in the desert, 
that doesn't mean that this is not it, that that that's somehow inauthentic or not uh, not a um, not an authentic way of of expressing expressing thoughts and feelings and and it's very easy for us today i think to dismiss a lot of this and and that's why i think um i, I mean the reason the reason i wrote the book really was to to try to recover some of this and especially when there are these these debates about what what it means to be to be indian or pakistani or bangladeshi today um how how there is a th- this well of of historical material that that in a way people haven't people haven't really drawn upon because um because it's rhetorically difficult for us to for us to wrap our minds around um because it's not it's not the familiar um it's not a familiar way of communicating, but it's not it's not any less valid than than the way in which we communicate today. This incredible linguistic richness, um, which we've we've probably lost in the West, but which to some degree is well, well to a great degree is still um, is still the case in India or Pakistan, where there are so many different languages available and so many different traditions. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, thanks. So now that this book is out, uh, what are your current and future projects? Well, um, I'm working on a few different things. Um, I'm uh, I'm finishing up the revision of my of my PhD thesis into uh, into a published book, um, and um, and that's uh, well, it'll be a great relief when that comes out um, because um, because that's sort of uh, I mean some of the some of the material that's in this book developed as I was thinking through the thinking through the 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 archival material and the various questions that, that were being raised. Um, and it, it would be nice now that I have a, now that I have a sort of accessible book out in the world. Um, now I can, I can follow that with the, um, w- with sort of for, a, for a, an academic readership, um, different ideas that I think are, that I think are important for our understanding of where, where India fits into this, um, into this great, um, this great Persian cultural formation. Um, so that's, that's one thing I'm working on, um, just filling in the gaps in that. Um, I'm also, uh, I have a, a three-year project at, at Cambridge, um, which is, is titled Making Persianate People, um, which is really thinking fundamentally about um, education in Persian. Because, as I said earlier, um, Persian, is the the way in which I'm I'm talking about it in this in this historical period, it's not it's not a national language. It's a transnational language, a cosmopolitan language, which has to be which has to be taught and learned. And even for people to to even if someone never wants to leave the court in Delhi, e- even if someone never wants to travel to Iran, um. In order to to work in that court, one still has to be educated in in this transnational language, and that's that's very important. The way in which the um, the universal affects the local, and the local affects the affects the universal. And and surprisingly, um, there there's never been any work um, that looks at the way in which in which the Persian language and the the literature that that um, that accompanies it. Is taught outside of um, 
outside of outside of Iran, outside of the the places where where Persian is um, where where a dialect of Persian is spoken natively. So so I'm looking primarily at India, but also at Central Asia to think to think about over the centuries how was how was Persian taught, and uh, and it comes as no surprise that um, that India was very important for this because. Because many many important teaching tools were actually were actually written in India, especially in the 18th century, um, and so um, and and so it's very and and again it's a way of um, it's a way of looking past this idea that um, that Persian is somehow is somehow artificial in India because it's clearly it's clearly so well integrated in the society that it's taught in this. Um, uh, uh, you know, everywhere from village schools to the, to the imperial court itself. Um, and lastly, I have a, I have a sort of fun project, which I'm, I, I might be jinxing by mentioning it here, but I'm, I'm working on a, I'm working on a novel, which is um, based in the, in the Dastan tradition in, in Persian and Urdu, this, this um, sort of magical storytelling tradition, which is great. Um, or it, it just provides so much, so much material. Um, so that's in in my very limited spare time. That's what I'm working on. Wow, they, they all sound they all sound fascinating, and we look forward to reading the the fruits of these sometime in the future. There's uh, nothing much more for me to do to do today, apart from to thank you again for coming on the podcast, and thanks for the opportunity to speak about your wonderful book. Yes, thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Delhi, Pages from a Forgotten History by Arthur Dudney. Thanks again for downloading, and I hope you listen again next time. Ta-ra!